The Dalai Lama once wrote that ethics is as crucial to the politician as it is to the religious practitioner. Dangerous consequences will follow when politicians and rulers forget moral principles. This nugget of wisdom has been proven repeatedly by the extensive list of people in power throughout history, who quickly forget about any form of limitations in their power when states secure their position. Another great thinker on politics is Montesquieu, who wrote that every man invested with power is apt to abuse it and carries authority as far as it will go. Now, politicians ought to have moral principles, but often political authority tempts them to abandon moral principles in favor of power, prestige, and wealth. Amongst libertarians and classical liberals, a bunch naturally skeptical of power, there are very few politicians in history worth gushing over. But today, I want to discuss one of the few political figures in history who remained firmly steadfast to his moral principles, resisting the temptation to abuse his authority and continually fought against tyranny his whole life. I'm, of course, talking about the famous Roman statesman Cato the Younger in the first century BC, who fought desperately to defend the Roman Republic against the tyranny of Julius Caesar. Cato the Younger was born in 95 BC, when the Roman Republic was beginning to crumble due to factional infighting and increasing power of military strongmen whose forces became increasingly loyal to their generals as opposed to Rome itself. This led to various powerful men with effectively their own private armies at their backs, jostling for control over the increasingly corrupt and broken system of government. Rome was very unique because it was a republic. Instead of being one of the three classical political forms of government, such as democracy, aristocracy, or monarchy, Rome was a mixture of all three forms of government. The idea was, if you mixed all three forms of government together, you preserve and mitigate the respective virtues and shortcomings of each system. The Roman government was balanced in such a manner that no one man could ever hold too much power. Even the highest officer of the state had another consul, the counterpart, to keep them in line. But Rome was not a free society by any stretch. Slavery was a major part of everyday life, and women were completely excluded from politics. The vast majority of people lived in desperate poverty. But even still, Rome pioneered many vital ideas and institutions that are today deemed an essential part of any competent government. Constitutionalism, term limits, the rule of law, checks and balances on power, and habeas corpus. Again, Rome was not perfect, but over time, the Romans developed a system of government that was remarkably stable and competent. This led to their eventual domination of the Mediterranean after the defeat of their archenemy, Carthage, in 146 BC. Cato was orphaned at a very young age and was looked after by his uncle, Marcus Livius Drusus, who also took care of his half-brother, Gnaeus Servilius Caipo. Without much family left, Cato grew to love his half-brother more than anyone in the world. When Cato was a child, he was asked who he loved most. Cato replied, My brother. When asked who he loved most after his brother... Cato replied, my brother. When asked a third time, who do you love most after your brother, Cato? He said, my brother. The Greek bard for Plutarch has two great stories about the youthful Cato that give us a glimpse in the kind of man he would become. While Cato was still a very young child, Rome's Italian allies were advocating that they ought to be made Roman citizens. One prominent leader of the Italian allies, Pompidus Silo, visited Cato's uncle. One day, Pompidus asked the young Cato and Caipo if he would join their cause. Cato's brother Caipo just smiled, but Cato stared fiercely at Pompidus without saying a single word. Outraged by his silence and tacit rejection of his cause, Pompidus became outraged and lifted the young Cato and held him dangling outside of a window, shaking him and shouting in an attempt to scare him into submission. But Cato, a mere child, being bellowed at by an adult shaking him over a straight drop, didn't make a single noise the entire time, and simply stared in stoic silence. According to Plutarch, Cato was never really a child, but more from birth a mini-Stoic. 
A second story from Plutarch shows that from a young age, Cato had a strong aversion to tyranny and a love for republican freedom. But unfortunately for Cato, he spent his formative years living under the reign of Sulla, one of the worst tyrants in Roman history. Sulla constantly drafted prescriptions. These were lists of men who were to be killed for a hefty reward. Sulla even used a system of prescriptions to kill men who had committed no crimes at all, but were very wealthy, allowing them to expropriate their wealth. Surprisingly, Cato's uncle was quite friendly with Sulla, and because of this, Cato and Caipo were often invited to visit and converse with Sulla while accompanied by their tutor, Sarpedon. Plutarch explains that Sulla's home didn't really resemble a home, it looked more like a dungeon, with shrieks of tortured echoing through the walls. As he walked through the corridors witnessing these horrors, young Cato firmly asked his tutor why nobody had killed Sulla yet. Cato's tutor replied that it was because people feared him more than they hated him. Enraged by the tyrant Sulla, Cato asked, then why didn't you give me a sword that I might slay him and set my country free from slavery? After this, Cato's tutor kept a close eye on Cato, just in case he ever acted on his patriotic urges. As Cato grew older and began to live independently from his uncle, he began to study and dedicate himself to Stoic principles. Today, the word Stoic describes so many masks or suppresses their emotions, but in Cato's day, Stoicism was a fully-fledged philosophical system. Though highly complex, the best way to summarize Stoicism is that a true Stoic only strives for virtue. External pursuits like wealth or status or pleasure are not inherently evil by any means, but they are subordinate to acting with virtue. Advocates of Stoicism argued that to be happy, one had to follow the rules laid down by nature, which is guided by a sort of divine reason one could call fate. Ideally, the Stoic person ought to be indifferent to all things that are outside of one's control. Though Stoicism was quite popular amongst Roman elites, Cato did not merely talk about Stoicism. He lived and practiced it every single day. Though he could live very, very comfortably from his inheritance, Cato loathed any form of luxury or frivolity. Cato much preferred the frugal Roman traditions of the past, laboring with his own hands, eating a simple dinner, lighting no fire to cook breakfast, wearing a plain kind of clothing, living in a very normal, average house, and not really being jealous of other people's possessions. In keeping with this frugality, Cato walked everywhere on foot, and this is quite rare for a wealthy Roman who could easily have been transported by a horse or carried by a litter. Cato ate and drank the cheapest food, seeing no particular reason to indulge himself in the finer things in life. But everyone has their weakness, even Cato, and his was wine, which he was known to drink in large quantities when discussing philosophical matters until the wee hours of the morning. But even in his flaws, Cato shows his frugality because he drank the exact same wine as workmen. Compared to his aristocratic contemporaries who were increasingly wealthy and debauched, Cato stood for a traditional Roman simplicity of a long-gone era. In his early years of manhood, Cato spent most of his time in private, only occasionally venturing into the public sphere. However, he was admired as a forceful and persuasive orator. By 72 BC, Cato's brother had become a military tribune in an army led by a consul named Publicola, dispatched to suppress the slave revolts of Spartacus. Yes, that's Spartacus. The ever-loving brother Cato volunteered and joined the army alongside his brother. This was hardly a campaign of glory, though. Publicola's army was routed twice by the enigmatic Spartacus. By 67 BC, Cato ran for the position of military tribune. At the time, a new law had been passed that prohibited candidates from using slaves known as nomenclatores. These slaves specialized in remembering names and would often whisper who someone was to their master. But this law buying them was impossible to enforce, so everyone simply ignored it. Everyone but Cato, of course. Though many other candidates resented Cato for making them look bad, he was also successfully elected as military tribune. Cato was given command of a legion and was sent on campaign to Macedonia. 
Despite his elevated status as military tribune above the average army grunt, Keo took part in soldiers' daily work. He ate the same rations, slept in the same conditions, and even kept up his habit of walking everywhere instead of using a horse. While taking a break from campaign, Keto travelled to the city of Pergamon, where he met the Stoic philosopher Anthodorus, who shared his intense devotion to one's principles. The pair became great friends, with Athenodorus accompanying Cato on campaign, and even returning to Rome with Cato to live with him until his final days. While on campaign, Cato received terrible news. His beloved brother, who was en route to him, had fallen extremely ill. By the time Cato reached him, it was already too late. Kaipo, Cato's closest relative, had died. For a brief time, Cato abandoned his stoic principles and fell into a deep grief, losing any sort of control over his emotions. It was a rare moment in life when Cato showed weakness, but also the depth of his love for the only family he had. By the end of his time as military tribune, Cato toured throughout Asia, a common practice for wealthy Romans. However, as always, Cato was a little different. Unlike his fellow Romans, he made no demands for lavish hospitality and travelled by foot mostly. As usual, he looked more like the average Joe than an elite Roman. Among the Romans, the Eastern world was famed for the abundance of wealth and luxury, all of which Cato took great pains to avoid. By 65 BC, Cato returned to Rome, where his reputation for austerity had begun to spread amongst the ranks of the Romans. Cato was eligible to stand for the position of quaestor, the first stop in what was called the Cursus Honorum, basically the political ladder one ought to climb to reach the top of Roman politics. Quaestors served a wide variety of functions, but generally they were in charge of supervising the state treasury and undertaking audits. But Cato did not immediately stand for election. In fact, he actually spent some time researching the laws relevant to his position and asked former questers about the position to make sure he understood the position's scope and power. While this doesn't sound that weird today, Cato is seemingly one of the only examples we have of a Roman politician intensely researching a position before they actually won it. Many questors did not pour much effort into their work and pawned off a lot of it to professional clerks to navigate the increasingly complex, often confusing finance of Rome. Because of this, corruption was widespread and deeply embedded. While in office, Cato pushed back against clerks who he saw as corrupt and prosecuted the most egregious cases. While in office, Cato rigorously pursued any men who received money for killing fellow citizens under the dictator's solace prescriptions. Throughout his tenure, Cato made honesty his only policy, being wholly transparent and refusing any form of bribery, which was ludicrously common in Rome at the time. Though he made no friends through special favours, despite his demure status of his position, Cato earned a great deal of popularity amongst the regular people for his honesty and fairness. Cato also quickly distinguished himself as a senator. The Roman Senate was not elected, but instead appointed. It was traditional that after serving office, a former magistrate was automatically appointed to the Senate. The Roman Senate had a great deal of authority and prestige, and was one of the most cherished Roman institutions. Unlike many politicians even to this day, Cato attended every single Senate meeting, no matter how glorious or mundane. Plutarch wrote that he used to be the first to reach the Senate and the last to leave it, and often, while the other senators were slowly assembling, he would sit and read quietly, holding his toga in front of a book. He never left the city when the Senate was in session. After his successful quaestorship, Cato was eligible to stand again for political office as tribune of the plebs. Cato had worked tirelessly as quaestor, and now he intended to retreat to his country estate and use his newfound free time to study philosophical questions. But after seeing the lackluster candidate Nepos throw his hat into the ring for election, Cato feared what he would do if left unchecked and returned to political life. Cato became a key player in what is known as the Catalinarian Conspiracy. A man named Lucius Sergius Catiline was a Roman aristocrat whose wealth had begun to climb rapidly. Worse yet, he ran for election as consul, one of the biggest positions in Roman politics, 
he took out loans and was hoping to repay them with the wealth he would extract from his time in office. But Catiline lost the election to the famous senator Cicero. Defeated and deeply in debt, Catiline had little to lose. Alongside other disgruntled senators, he began planning a plot to overthrow the Roman Senate, implement a policy of debt cancellation and redistribution of lands. Cicero uncovered the plot and arrested all involved with the conspiracy, and advocated before the Senate to execute them all without trial, a dangerous break from precedent. The then-rising star Julius Caesar argued for mercy, wanting to avoid killing Roman citizens without trial. But Cato emerged as a strong advocate for killing the conspirators. He believed that the executions were an appropriate response to treason, and if the conspirators were executed, their nearby army would disband without any leaders. The thwarting of this conspiracy is usually deemed to be the crowning achievement of Cicero, but Cato played a crucial role in tipping the balance of the Senate towards executing the conspirators. Though Catiline was defeated, the Catilinarian conspiracy revealed how fragile Rome was, and a violent revolution was increasingly likely. By now, the well-connected Julius Caesar had allied with renowned General Pompey and Marcus Crassus, who was thought to be the wealthiest man in Rome. Together, the trio became what was called the First Triumvirate, working towards carving up sections of Rome as their own personal domain. From this point on, Cato dedicated all of his efforts towards obstructing the conspiratorial triumvirate's plans at every turn. Cato was now one of the leading members of the Senate. His moral authority swayed many around him to vote against the interests of the triumvirate. But an ally of Cato's, Cicero, was successfully exiled thanks to the political maneuvering of his arch-rival Claudius. Claudius was allied with the members of the triumvirate, and he believed that both Cicero and Cato ought to be far removed from Rome, where Cato could constantly enforce deadlocks. To get rid of Cato, Claudius and the triumvirate proposed that he be sent to govern Cyprus, far, far away from Rome. Cato had no interest in leaving Rome and refused the position, but the triumvirate passed legislation that forced Cato to take it, regardless of his preference. Cato was reluctant to travel to Cyprus, but while present, he distinguished himself as always. Usually positions like this in the Eastern world were perfect for magistrates to make huge amounts of money by abusing their power through extortion and embezzlement. It was typical for magistrates to at least skim a little bit off the top, but not Cato. Cato didn't take a single penny. Using his skills from his day as a quester, Cato amassed a huge sum of money to return to Rome. When finally returned to Rome, disaster struck. Cato's financial records were lost at sea, and the only copy was destroyed in a fire. But Cato's reputation for honesty meant that no senator dared charge him for embezzlement. Cato didn't need proof they didn't steal. His staunch character was proof enough. Upon his return to Rome, Cato was met with crowds and honours, both of which he rejected. In 53 BC, Marcus Crassus, the third member of the triumvirate, died on campaign while in the Middle East. But no one left to mediate between Julius Caesar and Pompey, they began to stare each other down as rivals. Cato became the leading man in the Senate yet again, who opposed the machinations of both Pompey and Caesar. But Pompey began to side with the Senate, and increasingly it was clear that it was the state of Rome versus Caesar. Back when the triumvirate was still together, Crassus and Pompey helped Caesar become a governor of large swaths of what was then called Gaul, but is now called France. He was given the position of proconsul, or what we call a governor. Normally they serve for one year, and during this year they are immune from prosecution. But Caesar had the rules bent in his favour. His term was five years long, meaning that for five years no one could bring him to court. While a governor, without permission from the Senate, Caesar invaded Gaul and Britannia. Though illegal, his campaigns were massively popular and really successful financially, because he brought home huge numbers of slaves. If Caesar ever returned to Rome and was out of office, he would lose his immunity and be prosecuted by the Senate for starting a war without their consent. Knowing if he returned to Rome, he could lose everything. Caesar deliberated before famously crossing the Rubicon River into Rome, beyond the point of no return with his army to overthrow the Roman Senate. 
Pompey took charge of the senatorial faction and decided to abandon Rome to raise an army in Greece to counter Caesar's forces. Cato sided with the Senate and was dispatched to Sicily to secure a grain supply, but was quickly forced to leave when Caesar sent four legions. Cato played a relatively minor role in the ensuing four-year-long civil war, where Pompey did the bulk of the commanding for the senatorial faction. After four years of bloody civil war, the senatorial forces commanded by Pompey were annihilated by Caesar's forces at the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 BC. Fortunately, Cato was in charge of forces elsewhere at Dyrrachium. Pompey fled to Egypt but was killed before he ever reached land. Without a military leader like Pompey or an army capable of defeating Caesar, the senatorial faction's leading members had little choice but to surrender. But not Cato. Alongside a fellow senatorial commander named Metellius Scipio, Cato escaped to Africa and established operations at a place called Utica. Caesar quickly descended on Utica and in the Battle of Thaspis, the majority of the remaining senatorial forces were defeated. Cato, who had remained in Utica, was left to ponder his fate. Surrendering wouldn't be so bad. Caesar had practiced a great deal of clemency and pardoned the majority of his enemies. Cato surrendering meant that he would at least live the rest of his life in Rome, though his capacity for public office would be quite limited. After doing everything he could to prepare for Utica's defense, Cato had dinner with his friends and son. While chatting over wine, the conversation turned to the paradoxes of the Stoics. Cato proudly proclaimed, that only the good man is free, and that all bad men are slaves. For Cato, a life without virtue would be a life not worth living. And Cato thought that there could be no virtue under the tyranny of Caesar. After reading twice over Plato's dialogue on the soul, Cato called one of his servants in to bring a sword. When his servants refused, Cato flew into uncharacteristic rage, striking one of his slaves, something Stoics explicitly said not to do. When his comrades and son came into the chambers, they all wept, urging Cato not to kill himself. Cato emphatically stated, I must be the master of the course which I decide to take. Cato stabbed himself in the gut with his sword, but his weakened hand meant that his wound was grievous but not yet fatal. Concerned friends and family rushed into the room with a doctor who sewed up his wound, but when Cato awoke, he tore out his stitches and died by tearing out his own bowels. Cato died, and quickly afterwards Caesar became the sole ruler of Rome. We all know how that turned out. A knife in the back. Cato is a bit like my episode on Cicero. Both had tragic endings to their lives that didn't really seem to go so well. However, Cato might have died, but his strict character and example persisted, and it really persisted. Cato became a martyr for the tragic cause of Republican liberty for over a thousand years. After his death, fellow defender of the Republic, Cicero, praised Cato, writing that he had been endowed by nature with austerity beyond belief. Cicero believed that Cato committed suicide because life under Caesar jeopardized the pursuit of virtue. So according to Cicero, it's for him to die rather than to look upon the face of a tyrant. A generation later, the Roman poet Lucan distinguished himself as one of Cato's greatest admirers, saying that of the Civil War, if the victor had the gods on his side, the vanquished had Cato. Though Cato had a positive reputation amongst his fellow Romans, commentators were quick to point out that his stubbornness and dogmatic approach often clashed with dealing pragmatically, effectively enacting change. During the Middle Ages, monarchy was the preferred form of government, and the distinctly pagan Cato, while virtuous in life, carried a sullied legacy because of the sinful connotations of suicide at the time. The renowned Italian poet Dante Alighieri rekindled the admiration for Cato in his work The Divine Comedy. Cato's paganism barred him from a place in paradise, so Dante depicted Cato as a custodian of purgatory and praised him for dying for liberty. Notably, Cato was not sent to the section of hell specifically for suicides. 
But the high point of Cato's reputation was during the 18th century, and was ushered in by Joseph Addison's famous play, Cato A Tragedy. The play is set in Utica and revolves around the final days of Cato, climactically ending with his suicide. I honestly doubt the play would have too many fans today. The dialogue is stiff, the subject matter is quite niche, and at times, Cato is portrayed as the perfect person, so much so that it almost reads a bit like 18th century fan fiction. However, we are not the intended audience. When the play first premiered in 1713, it was a huge success, being staged 20 times just in London and over 300 times in the rest of England. By the end of the century, there were a whopping 26 editions of Cato A Tragedy. Though Addison was a firm Whig, the play appealed to both Tories and Whigs, because both parties could at very much at least agree that Cato was a model worth following. Addison was so popular and influential that the philosopher David Hume believed in the future everyone would be reading Addison and John Locke would fade into obscurity. Though the opposite happened. After Addison died in 1719, Thomas Gordon and John Trenchard took up the mantle of praising Cato through their anonymously published letters under the pen name Cato. The letters today are referred to as Cato's Letters. Though Cato's letters deal with a huge variety of topics, the character of Cato is often used as a standard to follow. Today, the Cato Institute derives its name from Cato's Letters by Trenchard and Gordon. Both Addison's Cato of Tragedy and Trenchard and Gordon's Cato's Letters became massively popular in colonial America. Cato of Tragedy was first performed in 1735 in South Carolina and quickly became the most popular play in America. Until Arthur Miller's 1949 play, Death of a Salesman, Cato of Tragedy held a record for the longest-running play in America. When the Continental Army was at their lowest point and camped at the miserable Valley Forge, the sick, hungry, and exhausted troops crowded into a small building to watch Cato a tragedy. It is a true testament to Cato's lasting appeal that his story was chosen to rouse the spirits of desperate troops. Cato was consistently elevated by the founders as a model of public and private virtue. Patrick Henry's famous quote, Give me liberty or give me death, was actually inspired by Addison's Cato, who exclaimed, It is now not the time to talk of aught but of chains or conquest, liberty or death. Cato's appeal was not even just for men. Abigail Adams signed her letters to John Adams as Portia, daughter of Cato. Similarly, Mercy Otis Warren often signed herself as Marcia, a reference to Cato's virtuous mother. Suffice to say, the austere standards of Cato loomed large in the minds of 18th century Americans, who always imagined that Cato was watching them over their shoulder, judging. Though not as enthusiastic as their American counterparts, Europeans also held Cato in quite a high regard. David Hume praised Cato as a philosophical patriot. Montesquieu, though originally critical of Cato, came to be a great admirer of his character. Among the French, Jean-Jacques Rousseau sang the highest praise of Cato, writing, If you are a philosopher, live like Socrates. If you are only a statesman, live like Cato. Cato is the ultimate contradiction of the maxim that history is written by the victors. Though we failed to defend his beloved republic, the vanquished Cato was only elevated higher than the victorious Caesar, reputation and standing. Cato was human and imperfect. We have to recognize that he only stood for the liberty of a very small section of society, the wealthy, well-to-do, Roman elite men. But while accepting his shortcomings, Cato reached an almost legendary status and became an enduring exemplar of a devotion to liberty and a hatred of tyranny. Cato inspired and informed the writings of many important liberal thinkers like Voltaire, Hume, and Montesquieu. Across the pond in America, Cato was almost like an honorary founder. He represented everything a statesman ought to be. Though extreme in his stubbornness, Cato was a worthy model of principal leadership. Politicians ought to learn from him. Though it has been 2,000 years since Cato died, 
Through his example, Cato helped inspire in the establishment of stable constitutional republics that we take for granted today. Thanks a million for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Portraits of Liberty is written and hosted by me, Paul Meany, and produced by Landry Ayers. You can also visit libertarianism.org to find more shows like this. I hope to see you next time.